Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kai Choice. And that's when I think, oh, you took it there. Everybody in this apartment's gonna die tonight. That and more, but before that, I just wanna say, uh, we always give a shout out to our Patreon patrons, the folks who have just signed up, especially for those who give $25 or more per month. So I want to give a huge shout out now to Andrea Hemming, Bristol Hollingsworth, David McGrath, Riley Strong, Brian Smith, Deanna Murray, Deirdre Mullins, Joe Anderson, Hinamona Baker, Marion Hart, and Sylviana Amethyst. Thank you all so, 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 so <laughs> very much. Uh, last week was one of the scariest weeks ever for Risk because we really got down to brass tacks and looked at the finances and realized that we have to apply for government assistance here. So we did. By the end of the week, we had squared that away, and now we're in a holding pattern waiting to see if it goes through, how much it might be, when it might come, Ah, uh, it was just a, it was a rough week last week, but we're, we're staying positive. And, you know, like I always say, I always say, come hell or high water, we're going to keep putting this show out there as long as we possibly can. And we really do believe that we are going to make it through this. <laughs> we really do believe it. And we really are dedicated to that. Uh, and we feel that what we do here is quite important. I mean, I personally find listening to these stories to be essential self-care, to be like mental health necessity, really. And so uh, thank you all so much for supporting us on Patreon. That is at patreon.com slash risk. There's lots of perks to becoming a patron of ours over there. Lots of bonus stories, interviews, and, you know, extra content over there. And if you are already a patron, now would be a great time to up the amount that you're donating if that's possible for you. If you are not a patron... Be wonderful if you could become one at patreon.com slash risk. Or if you want to make a one-time donation to us, you can go to paypal.me slash risk show and help us out that way. Um, I do believe we are certainly going to get this uh, government loan. It's just a matter of how much and when, you know. So in the meantime, we're really... We're, we're just in a tight spot. So any help you can give to help keep risk running is dearly, dearly appreciated. One way that is super easy to help us out just a little bit is to come to one of our live streams. The next one is Friday, June 26 at 10 p.m. Eastern time. That's 7 p.m. Pacific. And that is Friday, June 26. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. The one we just did a couple nights ago was just lovely. All of these live streams have been just lovely. Everyone really kind of appreciates the communal sense that they get out of being there. So do come see one of our live streams. The next one is 10 p.m. Friday, June 26th. That's 10 p.m. Eastern, and tickets are at risk-show.com slash tour. Now here's the show.
kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Poolside and Ammo Ammo behind me now. But more importantly, my good friend Xavier Smith sings the lead vocals on this song. It's called Around the Sun Body Music Remix. You should go get it now. <laughs> Also behind me now are explosions, lots of explosions all the time everywhere uh, with the fireworks phenomena that seems to be going on this year. Almost as rampant as male comedians trying to sleep with underage kids. Hopefully another thing that as we become more conscious of it, we can do whatever we can to stop it. As you all know, I, I've been super, super impressed with a lot of the leadership among activists recently. People in and around the Black Lives Matter movement have been really shining a light and showing a way. And uh, I've been very inspired by that. I rarely talk about specific podcast episodes of other podcasts, but Mike Berbiglia has a new podcast called Working It Out. And the third episode I listened to today while I was walking over to the early voting poll place. And it was just, I felt like it's an episode of a podcast that everyone in America should hear. It's a conversation between Mike Birbiglia, comedian, and John Laster, another comedian a black guy with a perspective that I think people really should hear. So if you get a chance, check out for Biglia's new podcast, um, Working It Out, but in particular, the third episode, the interview with John Laster. We're calling this week's episode Dignity, stories about treating one another with respect. Um, <laughs> obviously something we all need to be thinking a lot more about these days. Fortunately, we have four wonderful storytellers to help us navigate that thematic territory. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Cody Hom, who is a cartoonist. You can find him on Instagram at C7Animatics. But before that, we're going to hear a story that was recorded a few years ago at our Los Angeles show by Kai Choice. I have to confess, I thought we had run this story years ago, but we hadn't. So it was a delightful discovery. Kai, you can find on Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Kai Choice. Here he is now with a story we call Felix Gets It. tell a story about um, why I don't have roommates anymore. I, uh, so when I first graduated from college, I was, uh, I was super, uh, I, was, I, was, I had no money, okay? No money in my pockets or even in my bank account, white people. <laughs> and I was crashing on couches and I was just like so desperate to uh, have... Uh, to masturbate on a bed, you know what I mean? Like with my cat, Ani, staring at me uh, instead of in the shower or like right before the shower on the toilet, but not while peeing, you know what I mean? Just real quick, three minutes, in and out. So when I saw an ad for a room that was, uh, it was an upstairs, non-smoking, corner unit for just under 1800 or just under $800. This is how long ago that was. Um, I jumped at the chance, right? I jumped at the chance. Um, uh, and he was even on the west side, which if you're not from LA, um, that's basically Mars. <laughs> Everything was, was perfect, 
Everything was so perfect. I answer the ad. Uh, we set a time and a date for coffee to, to make sure that we're compatible as roommates. And um, I'm not attracted to her at all, which is perfect. And she walks up to me and she introduces herself. Hey, I'm Mo. And she's mousy and, and blonde and she's got a pixie cut. And, and her self-descriptor, she says, I'm just like really responsible and laid back and creative and I think this is going to work. I didn't need to sign a lease, which is perfect, right? Because my student loans basically threw my credit score through a plate glass fucking window. And uh, she had this adorable like little tuxedo cat um, named Felix and he got along real great with my big ass fluffy drag queen of a tortoiseshell cat who didn't like anybody. And then uh, three months on the dot after I move in, I'm, uh, I'm awakened by these primal, like guttural, like whale sobs. And I'm thinking, oh my God, is someone hurt? Is what's going on? Am I gonna die in Santa Monica? And then I, I, I walk out to the living room. I'm, I'm like rubbing sleep out of my eyes because it's still dark outside and I find Mo, just like blotchy face, sitting in front of the coffee table, just like tissues everywhere, and she's screaming, John broke up with me. Okay, I was really caught off guard. First of all, because it's 10 minutes before my alarm is supposed to go off, and I gotta catch a goddamn bus to work. But also, we're talking about the guy who lives downstairs. Okay, over the past few months, I'd like cultivated a really nice bromance with this guy. Like, he always had good weed, he never tried to hit on me, and he built a fucking koi pond on his patio. <laughs> what cis straight guy do you know with that kind of credibility? Are you fucking kidding me? So, uh, the next seven days felt like a purgatory version of Hanukkah. She spent like sun up to sundown on the couch in the living room, ugly crying, inhaling pizzas and Coronas like she didn't have a fucking bedroom or a bladder. <laughs> and uh, her cat Felix slept with me for that entire week. He, he slept curled up on the pillow next to me and Ani because his fucking deadbeat mom was always passed out next to a stack of little Caesars boxes. And then when the oil well of her fucking tears finally ran dry, she knocked on my door late one night and she said, can I ask you a favor? I'm gonna break into John's house and I just need you to, you don't even have to do anything, just stand watch and just yell out if the cops if the cops come, it's, it's not even a big deal. I just need one of his sweatshirts. I just want to smell him while I sleep. <laughs> and I'm like, are you fucking kidding? First of all, have you seen me? I mean, if you're listening to this, I'm black. <laughs> and every time I get pulled over, I get called sir, okay? <laughs> Do you use social? If the cops show up, I'm fucking Swiss cheese. That's what's happening. But instead I said, <laughs> really? And she said, why would I joke about something like this? And I think that's when she wrote my name in blood on her shit list. But I said, no, I said, no, I fucking meant it. And um, because my savings account balance was two digits, I ignored that bright red flag. A few weeks later, uh, she takes me out for drinks. She says they're on her, which is not suspicious at all because I'm broke. And on the way back, she uh, really seriously accuses me of fucking her boyfriend because why else would he break up with her? And, and in my head, I was like, that's funny. But uh, what I actually said was, oh yeah, seriously, I really did spend all this time not fucking dudes because I was holding out for the boyfriend of an emotionally unstable white feminist whose parents pay her rent so she can intern reading scripts poorly, I might add. <laughs> but being a very chill person who still needed a place to stay, I, uh, I chalked that accusation up to inebriation and I, I pocketed another red flag. 
We go on about life as usual. It seems like things are cool, right? It seems like things are okay. I think life is fine. And then about a week later, I'm jolted awake at 2 a.m. on a weekday by screams coming from the living room. Oh, God. Oh, God. Yeah. Fuck me, motherfucker. Fuck me. Yeah. Fuck, 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 fuck me. <laughs> I'm like, there's no way I'm sleeping through this, right? So I put on some sweatpants. I fucking walk out to the living room. And uh, what do I see? What do I see but a room full of cigarette smoke in our non-smoking apartment? And uh, uh, Mo is sitting on the couch with her friend Karen, who is just like a tattooed, fucking pompadoured uh, extra from Sons of Anarchy who does hair on the weekdays. And two fallout boy-looking motherfuckers I've never seen in my life. <laughs> and they are watching and cheering on a TV a TV and the biggest fucking glistening wet white dick I've ever seen in my life. Looking back, it probably wasn't the biggest white dick I'd ever seen. But most people watch porn on their phone screen, right? (laughs) Or on a laptop. You know, not on the living room TV in the apartment that they share with their roommate who has to fucking catch a bus to work in four hours. So I asked them to turn it down, and they they reluctantly uh, obliged, and then I I asked them to not smoke in the apartment, and Mo goes, this is my fucking house! It's not our house. And uh, because I didn't have the time and energy to look for a place to stay, I took that fucking red flag, and I folded it, and I ate it. Fast forward to a couple weeks later, okay? Um, Another lively fucking weeknight, 3 a.m. fiesta, and I stumble out of my bedroom because I have to pee, and I almost have a goddamn heart attack when I encounter, looming in the hallway, a tall figure, seven feet tall, okay? Uh, It's a man, it's a man, he's got long, stringy black hair, he's got a black dress shirt on, black pants, 12-inch platform boots! He bends perpendicular to the floor and extends his poorly manicured fucking claw to shake my hand, and I ignore it because I have to ask, who the fuck are you? And he says, I am Zordon, a vampire. And I laugh and laugh because Zordon is the name of that boss guy from the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. (laughs) But then I realize he is not laughing back. So I say, okay, vampire, how old are you? And he says, I am 237 years old. And I I look at his face and and I judge 40 in human years. And then I notice he's wearing a necklace made of fucking forks. <laughs> and I know he's serious. So I retreat back to my bedroom and I lock the door and I, I shove a chair under it, which is something I'd only seen people do in movies up till now. And I think maybe this will keep me from dying tonight. And I wake up in the, the next morning, and as I'm running out the door to work, I see Mo on the couch, and, and she's eating cereal out of another one of my fucking bowls she's never gonna wash. <laughs> and I say, hey, I think maybe it's not a good idea to bring vampires home. <laughs> and she says, yeah, you know, he was really cool at first, but then he ended up being kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> And because I'm practicing love and patience, I take that red flag and I dunk it into my travel coffee mug and I screw the lid on tight. Another week goes by and Mo's decided to stop washing dishes because I owe her $11 for the electric bill. When I say stop washing dishes, I mean stop washing my dishes because she doesn't use her own. She also ruins my only cast iron skillet, which if you're familiar with cast iron skillets, you know that they're family heirlooms that can be passed down by generations. They're very important. She baked an entire fucking trout into it and left it there overnight. (laughs) 
So the weekend rolls by. I have a date. I have a weekend date with this girl I've been chatting with for a few months online, and she flies out from the East Coast to see me. That's how good this is. And uh, you know how dating goes when you're in your 20s. The entire weekend is just like Netflix and chilling. And as our staycation comes to a close, uh, we're laying in bed and we're just not watching a movie, but it's on the TV, when all of a sudden the screen goes dark. I'm like, what the fuck? I walk out to the hallway, I look around, everything looks normal. Mo and Karen are just innocently watching TV on the couch. I open the fuse box, flip the one switch that's flipped, look back to the room, the blue light of the TV screen is on again. I think, okay, we're back in business. I hop back in bed. A couple minutes later, we're back in darkness. Ashley says, what the fuck? And I know she's regretting her flight, but I'm not gonna refund it. <laughs> Walk back out to the hallway just in time to catch Mo slamming the fuse box shut. She says, you can use the electricity once you pay me the $11 you owe me. And I realize Karen is standing behind her just like grinning like a fucking psychopath. And I go to flip the switch back on. My face is hot. I'm real quiet because when I'm about to fuck shit up, you can barely hear me. I say... I'll give you the $11 I owe you when you wash the fucking dishes that have piled up to the ceiling in the kitchen. I go to flip the switch, and that's when Karen jumps in front of her and pulls out a goddamn switchblade. And I think, surprisingly, this is a first. I grew up in LA, and this is the first time I've had a knife pulled on me. And at this point, I say, this red flag can suck my fucking dick. I yell, you fucking psychopath, you gonna stab me over $11? And Mo says, yeah, she will. We'll fucking kill your cat too. We'll throw Annie out the window. <laughs> and that's when I think, oh, <laughs> you took it there. Everybody in this apartment's gonna die tonight. <laughs> I'm ready to go kill Bill on all these bitches, right? or John Wick, more appropriately. Uh, just out of nowhere, as if by providence, John appears in the apartment building, but probably he just heard us from downstairs and ran up, right, after the screaming. And he, he hooks his arm around Karen's waist and the other arm uh, around her armpit, and he drags them out, and Karen's screaming, I'll fucking kill you, I'll fucking kill you! And my date is still in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and Mo is running after them, screaming, clawing, let her go, let her go. And John looks at me and says, I'm sorry, she's always like this. And I think that he's referring to them both as a singular unit to save time. <laughs> the next day, Mo act like nothing had ever happened. No apology, nothing. And because I didn't have any more space in my room for red flags, I started looking for apartments very quietly. I found one within a week. I signed the lease. And once I had paid my deposit, I broke the news to Mo. And, uh, and she said, oh my God, what am I going to do? I can't pay the rent here by myself. To the sound of the world's smallest violin. Her mom arrived about a week later to help her pack and to get shit together. And um, as I loaded my final box, the two of them sat in her car, idling in the driveway. And Mo's mom said, do you need help with anything? And Mo said, it was so great meeting you. <laughs> and I wondered if her mother knew anything at all about her life. A few minutes later, I'm standing in the living room and I'm holding my cat Ani's carrier. Uh, and um, I had taken all the doorknobs and light bulbs because I replaced those, they're mine now. <laughs> and I realized I'm forgetting something. I needed to say goodbye to Felix, her cat. 
because he'd been through all of this with me, you know what I mean? Like, he didn't deserve this, it wasn't his fault. I went to the bathroom because that's where I'd locked him up to keep him from getting out and into the streets while we were packing. And he was sitting on the floor, and once I opened the door, he hopped up onto the toilet and then onto the sink, and then he meowed into that, you know that nod? That's the nod that black people do when they see each other on the street and they don't know each other? <laughs> Felix did that nod to me. And, you know, sometimes you, you, I wanted to kidnap him. I wanted to take him with me. I felt like a prisoner leaving behind a cellmate. I felt like, like I was letting him down. And sometimes you just have to wonder if, uh, if some animals are actually divine beings that are placed into your life, just sent here specifically to change you in a profound way, if only for a moment, right? And what happened next, what happens next is, is how I really understood exactly how much Felix got me because he had taken a giant shit in the tub, <laughs> completely saving me the trouble of having to do it myself, you guys. <laughs> Thank you. preface the story with I'm Chinese American. The high school that I went to was really, really, really overpopulated. It's probably still overpopulated to this day. Since it was so overpopulated, the school had to create a gym class because they ran out of gym space. And so they called it Polar Bear. They would just send the kids outside onto the football field for their gym class and they would just play sports no matter the season. And I think the only time they weren't allowed to send us outside was uh, if it was raining, snowing, for obvious reasons, uh, if it was icy, and I think if it was below 30 degrees. Now, on the first day of class, the teacher did roll call, obviously, uh, but we were in order by last names on the roster. And so he called us out by our last names. And after he finished roll call, he went to the side of the football field where he could like watch over all of us. That way he could make sure we weren't all trying to kill each other. So he walked off after we all split up. And so the entire class grabbed me and there were two other Asian kids in our class, grabbed all three of us, pulled us all aside and they went, hey, um, look, your names are probably gonna be hard to pronounce or hard to memorize. So we're just gonna sign you nicknames, okay? Now at the time, I'm, I'm a freshman in high school. I didn't know any better. So I was like, oh yeah, cool, totally sure. A nickname, what? I've never had a nickname before. That sounds great. And so, we went along with it. And so they lined us up. They pointed at the first kid. And they went, your name is Jackie Chan. They pointed at the second kid. They went, your name is Bruce Lee. And then they pointed at me. And then they froze. And I was like, what is my name going to be? And they went, um, shit, we're out of famous Asian people. Um, you can be, you, you can be China. And I went, I'm sorry, what? And they went, your nickname's gonna be China. I'm like, I'm being named after the entire country of China? And they went, yeah. At that point, I was like, okay, fuck, sure, I guess. I didn't have the strength of character to say anything back because I would have been like, no, call me by my actual fucking name. But anyway, so keep in mind, my name is Cody. That's a common name, honestly. I spent the entire year as the entirety of China. Now keep in mind, None of these kids wanted to learn our names because they just assumed they would be hard to pronounce and hard to memorize. After the first day of class, all the other kids had left the football field, and so it was me and Jackie Chan left. And so I grabbed Jackie Chan by the shoulder, which is the weirdest sentence I've ever had to say, grabbed him by the shoulder, and I went, hey, before we go into the locker rooms, what is your name? Because I genuinely want to know. And he gave a very weak smile, and sighed. And he went, My name's Edward. Thank you for asking. And I went, My name is Cody. It's nice to meet you. And he went, It is nice to meet you too. And then we left.
This is Risk. This is Jay Som behind me now. And we just heard from Cody Hom, who, as I said before, is a cartoonist. You can find him on Instagram at C7 Animatics. Now, what was that that Cody just shared with us? An anecdote. <laughs> those are one of those three minutes and 30 seconds or less stories that we are inviting all of you to send us. Uh, recently, we've been calling specifically for people to share anecdotes on the subject of race or racism, but we're still open to people sharing anecdotes about anything. If you go to the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook, there is a pinned post there where I'm calling for anecdotes, a little video that I made. And the first comment in the comments thread is tips on how to create one of these anecdotes for us. But you can also just write to me directly at kevin at risk-show.com and I will give you tips as well. We have a document that tells people how to best record yourself, how to get the best audio recording of yourself and the key is to zero in on just one or two incidents you know something happening just like cody with his incident on the playground that day maybe it was an altercation that you found upsetting maybe it was something you witnessed that you found really inspiring Maybe it was something that went down between you and a family member that filled you with compassion. Maybe it was your most embarrassing moment, a moment you couldn't stop laughing about, or, or a time you were really terrified, or wildly surprised, or, or confused, bewildered, whatever it is, some little incident that sticks in your memory and that you think you could share with us in three minutes and 30 seconds or less. For any more tips on how to do that, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance, there's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Now in a little bit, we're going to hear a story from one of our live streams. Remember, our next live stream is Friday, June 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern. That's 7 p.m. Pacific. And you can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. This story we're going to hear on this episode from one of our live streams comes to us from Judith Hertog. Judith is a writer 
and you can find her on Twitter at JBHerdog. But before Judith, we're going to hear a story from Oz Du Soleil. It's been such a treat every time that Oz has been on the show. But what was really interesting about when he sent this story into us, he said to me, you know, normally I don't share stories on the topic of race. And I said, oh, why do you think that is? Can you express why you think that might be? And his answer was so interesting that I asked him if he could record it as a sort of coda to include at the end of the story Oz's thoughts about why in the past he would normally not be inclined to share stories on the subject of race and racism. You can find Oz, his YouTube channel is called Excel on Fire. This one was edited by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Here is Oz du Soleil now with a story we call Rhythm and Blues. I'm in the Navy on a ship in the Atlantic Ocean and we're out there running drills. And the captain just okayed a request that we have music piped into the mess decks during dinner. The mess decks is this big bright room that can seat about 50 people during mealtime and it's the space for people ranked E1 through E6. The E7s through E9s ate in another part of the ship and then the officers ate in the officers quarters. And the way this would work, anybody who had a song they wanted to play during dinner, they would take their cassette with a note with their name and the song they wanted played, take it to the sonar room to Petty Officer Simmons. But the black guys on the ship had a sense of how this was going to go. We weren't going to get any R&B or hip hop played. But I made several attempts. I took some Prince, some Babyface, some Al Be Sure. Petty Officer Simmons, this white guy from Arizona, he would take my cassette and lower his head and say, I don't know, you know, I'll play it if I can get to it. And of course, he never got to it. But one day, he lowered his voice. That kind of, here, let me tell you something that's just between me and you. The one time I tried to play some Janet Jackson I got all these calls. Why you playing that jungle music? Quit playing that jigaboo shit. So that's when I quit trying to get a song played. One day at dinner, I'm sitting there and Seaman Reed sits down and he looks so happy. He's this 20 year old black guy, tall from Atlanta. He's not been in the Navy even a full year. And he's pointing at me and he says, I finally got him to play a song. I said, you sure? Yeah, yeah, you're going to see. You're going to see. And then we hear, oh, Spider-Man and Freeze in full effect. Poison, Bell Bib DeVoe, yeah. I look across the table at Reed and the joy in his body fell away. His eyes glassed over. He stood up. I turned to see what he was looking at, and there was Petty Officer Conrad, this big white E6 with 18 years in the Navy. He was standing up, reaching over his head, and turning the speaker off. Now, Conrad is this E6 with all his seniority. Reed is this E3, but he won't let it go. He said, Conrad, what the fuck? We were listening to that. Conrad turns and says, don't nobody want to listen to that shit. So we're nobody. We were five black guys sitting around at the table. Glad we finally heard something that we knew and liked. And I looked across the mess decks at the 45 white guys and nobody said anything. 
But now we've got this layer of rank to deal with. And nobody in the room at that time had any more rank or seniority than Conrad. And Reed kept going. For the past week, we've been listening to Aerosmith and Lou Reed and ZZ Top and that fucking Guns N' Roses song about niggas and police get out of my way. And we can't listen to one three minute song. His voice cracked. His eyes are welling up with tears. And Conrad does not even acknowledge it. He sits down and resumes eating his dinner. But that hurts. We didn't matter. We have been listening to a week of rock and roll and heavy metal and couldn't get one song. But where do we go? We're in the Navy. There are no black chiefs or officers above us who can identify with this as people Man to man, the people above us in the chain of command can identify with this and they're going to see it as a fucking song, something that they don't want to deal with. We are in the U.S. Navy defending democracy. We are out here to shoot fake torpedoes and run fire drills. We are out here for the needs of the Navy. We are not running inclusion and equality drills out here. We couldn't see how to get this to matter. But that moment had been tense enough such that news of it percolated up to the captain. And he fixed it. He retracted his agreement. No more music on the mess decks. I've been doing storytelling shows for six years now. And why have I been reluctant to pitch a story that had race as its theme? First of all, it takes many hours to prepare a story to go back and dig up old details to think about how to phrase something, how to structure the story. And that is a lot of hours to think about something that can be as dark and painful and volatile as racism. And then I don't want to end up with a story that's wagging its finger at white people. I don't want a story that sounds like I'm speaking for all black people. I don't want to sound like a whining victim or a victim who's beckoning for a white savior. And another reason for my reluctance has been what public life has turned into with news media and social media, where outrage is rewarded. I see things nuanced and I feel like it's important for me to acknowledge that I live a nice life. I can go places and do things that were not options for my parents. I can go places now that I could not go to myself in the 1980s. I'm glad that I no longer live in a time where co-workers could tell nigger jokes. And if I complain, they accuse me of not having a sense of humor or, oh, they're just jokes. Those days are gone. But yes, racism persists. Ugly, fucked up shit happens and it needs to stop. But too often I've found myself in conversations, whether one on one or online, where acknowledging that I can have a nice life and racism exists. White and black people have questioned, am I delusional? Am I trying to say that racism is gone? And what's really painful is when another black person has dismissed me as a house nigger. And it's been really tough to have nuanced conversations when outrage gets the likes and shares. But why talk about race now? Because it is important. It does need to be talked about and dealt with. And what I love about the storytelling art form is a storyteller goes in front of an audience, makes themselves vulnerable and shares something from their own life. 
They aren't telling somebody else's story. We don't get up in front of an audience and tell you what you should do or what you should think. And so I set aside my concerns and decided to share, to add my voice to an important conversation. My words speaking only for myself. Please welcome to the virtual stage, Judith Hertog. Okay. So we are just turning in to the parking lot of the Historical Society of St. Albans, Vermont, where I'm about to be sworn in as a new American citizen. When my Israeli spouse turns to me and says, you're not planning to do anything crazy, right, Judith? And I'm not sure what to say, because in fact, I had been hoping that maybe something would happen to disrupt or cancel the ceremony, because I'm not so sure about this whole business of becoming a citizen. I never wanted to be an American, and it's completely by accident that I ended up here. When I was 18, I moved from Amsterdam, where I grew up, to Israel, where I went to university and met Gil. And when he and I finished our studies, we decided to go to the US for graduate school, expecting to return to Israel because the peace process was happening. And I figured by the time we were done with our studies, we'd be returning to a new Middle East and there would be open borders between Palestine and Israel and Syria, and there would be peace and everything would be wonderful. Obviously, that didn't work out. <laughs> and instead, we got jobs in the US and we ended up having American children. And after being here for about 20 years, I had almost made peace with this country when the elections of 2016 happened. And since then, I have been so angry with this country. I just don't know what to do with myself. Some days, I just want to pack up my stuff and leave immediately. And other days, I feel I owe it to my kids to stay here and try to make this a better place. And that's the only reason I applied for citizenship. Not because I think this is such a wonderful country, but because of everything that's wrong here that needs fixing. And Gil knows I'm in this ongoing battle with America. And he also knows that sometimes I get just possessed by this righteous fury that makes me do impulsive things that I later regret. Like the time I was asked to volunteer at our daughter's gymnastics meet. <laughs> and I'm not much of a gymnastics person. I don't understand American sports. And I'm a bit suspicious of all that glitter and cheer. But I wanted to be a supportive parent. So on this Saturday morning, I drive with Dina to Bellows Falls, Vermont for the end of the year high school gymnastics state meet. And we're in this enormous gym. And to one side are the bleachers filled with hundreds of people. And I report for volunteer duty at the uneven bars. Mm -hmm. And the uneven bar judge, this middle-aged lady with an American flag pin, hands me a stopwatch and explains that my job is to make sure that if a gymnast falls off the uneven bars during her routine, she spends no more than 10 seconds on the ground or she'll be disqualified. Mm. And 
I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed with all these rules and I'm feeling a little bit out of place, but I want to do a good job and not mess this up and not embarrass Dina. So I'm standing there practicing how to operate a stopwatch. And suddenly the speakers come on and this voice says, please rise for our national anthem. And only at this point do I realize that the uneven bars are in the very front of the gym. And I'm standing in front of the uneven bars, right underneath this gigantic flag that's hanging on the wall. And as everybody behind me shifts to face the flag, I have to decide what to do. Because normally, I would have remained seated or would I would have discreetly faced away from the flag because I don't do flag worship. Mm -hmm. I think there is too much wrong in this country to be celebrating the flag. But from the corner of my eye, I see the uneven bar judge standing behind me with her hand on her heart and I hesitate. But as I think of all the police brutality, of the racism in this country, of the corporate greed, of the corruption, of the inequality, and as I think of USA Gymnastics, the organization in charge of this event, which I had just found out for years had been covering up for Dr. Larry Nasser, who had been sexually abusing the girls who were under his care. And I'm filled with such fury that I just sink down. And as soon as my knee hits the ground, I realize I've kind of put myself in a really awkward position. And I can see what's happening behind me in the hall, but I figure I must be the only person in this crowd who's taking a knee. And I'm not even an American citizen. And I kind of think, oh my God, maybe I made a mistake. Maybe I should just get back up, but it's too late for that. So I just remain kneeling and I can feel hundreds of eyes staring at the back of my head in disapproval. And I'm waiting for the anthem to finish. And oh my God, that anthem goes on forever. <laughs> well, for the next two hours, I feel this awkward tension between me and the judge. And I feel bad. I want to tell her that I didn't mean to insult her, her values, that this was just my way of trying to be a good citizen. But there's no time for talking. She is focused on her job. She is scoring those gymnasts and none of them fall off the bars. So I'm completely useless with my stopwatch. And at the end of the competition, the judge shakes my hand and says, thank you so much for volunteering. We truly appreciate it. And she gives me the most politely withering smile. And when Dina and I are later driving back home in silence, I ask, are you mad at me for taking a knee? And she goes, what? You took a knee? Because it turned out she had been standing all the way in the back and hadn't seen me. Mama, nobody takes a knee at a high school gymnastics meet. And when we get home, she complains to Gil what I've done this time. And of course, he's irritated with me. So I know why Gil is worried now that we are at my citizenship ceremony. And I lie to him. I say, I'm not planning to cause any trouble or do anything that'll get me in. That's against the rules because I have looked up the rules. I've actually gone online and found the manual for USCIS citizenship ceremonies and studied it. And to my surprise, I found this clause that says that applicants are not required 
to stand for the anthem. And when I saw that, I got so excited. I started fantasizing that maybe I could organize all the applicants and we could all take a knee together. But of course, I didn't tell Gil what I was thinking. So here we are in the hall where the ceremony is taking place. And I find my seat in the front row. We all have been assigned seats with our names on them. And next to me sits this guy who is wearing an American flag tie and a suit. And it turns out he's from Canada. So I ask him, why are you becoming an American? Thinking of all my American friends who have been saying that they would like to move to Canada. And he goes, well, just happened to be born in Canada, but I haven't been back there in 20 years. And this guy just doesn't seem interested in talking to me. Maybe I've insulted him with my assumption that one needs a good reason to want to become an American. And anyway, I figure he's not the kind of type who's gonna take a knee with me. So I turn to my left, to this big guy who's wearing work boots and carpenter pants, and he has dreadlocks, and it turns out he's from Barbados. And when I ask him why he is becoming a citizen, he explains that on his green card, he couldn't get affordable healthcare insurance, and that's the only reason he's becoming a citizen. And he starts complaining about how absurd it is that in the United States of America, people don't have access to affordable health care like in any normal country. Because in Barbados, there's universal health care. And I chime in, same in Holland, same in Israel. And we really bond over our shared outrage at the American health care system. And I see my opportunity and I say, you know what? I just found out that we don't have to stand for the anthem. How about we take a knee together? And he goes, nah, I have to be at work at two o'clock. I just want to get out of here as soon as possible. I want no trouble. I'll do whatever they want. And just then the judge announces that the ceremony is starting. And I have just have time to whisper back, but let's vote for universal health care. And then this choir starts singing the anthem. And the Canadian guy stands to my right with his hand on his heart. And the guy from Barbados is standing, slouching a bit. And again, I have to make a decision. And I'm thinking of Gil, who's a few rows behind me. And I know he's hoping I'm not going to do anything to cause trouble. And I'm thinking of my neighbor to the left who has to be at work at two o'clock. And I figure I owe it to him to just let the ceremony proceed smoothly so he can be at work in time. And I decide not to take a knee. But I also can't make myself stand for the anthem. So I just remain seated. And I kind of hope that maybe there's enough people between me and Gil that his view of me is blocked. And I also kind of hope that maybe everyone will assume that my English isn't good enough to understand what I'm supposed to be doing. And as I sit there and I look up at all those people around me standing at this girl from Iraq, this woman from Sudan, this guy from Somalia, that couple from Bhutan, I realize this is not a time for me to be making some statement. This is about people having a place to stay, not being sent back into wars or uncertainty, maybe get health insurance. And when everybody sits down again, there is this USCIS official across from me and she looks at me and I swear she smiles and winks as if to say, I'm with you. And when we drive back home, Gil turns to me and says, I saw you. Well, I'm glad you didn't take a knee, but why couldn't you just stand like everyone else? Judith, you're no Colin Kaepernick. You're no Rosa Parks. You're just a white lady getting another citizenship. 
<laughs> and I knew he was right. But I also know why sometimes I'm overcome by this fury. It's because I so much want there to be a perfect society where everybody can live in peace and equality. And I know my life has been pretty lucky, but I also know that the world is just imperfect and unjust. And it makes me feel so powerless not to know how to change that. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Our Native Daughters behind me now, and we just heard from Judith Hertog, who you can find on Twitter at JB Hertog. Come see us at the next Risk live show. Uh, it is a live stream on June 26 at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. You can get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour. And don't forget to check out everything we have to offer at thestorystudio.org. There's two-day workshops. There's six-week workshops. There's workshops in different areas of storytelling, like storytelling for personal growth or storytelling for performance or storytelling for business. And we have actual corporate workshops for businesses. We've done workshops for people like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and American Express. That is all to be found at thestorystudio.org. Don't forget, all of the faculty at The Story Studio are the same people who coach the storytellers who tell stories on risk. And I am available for coaching and mentoring at kevinallison.com. I'm also available for doing fun little videos, personalized, customized videos that you can send to a friend at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. Risk can be found on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at Risk Show. On Twitter and Instagram, I am at the Kevin Allison. And don't forget, we dearly, dearly, dearly need your help at patreon.com slash risk. Or if you want to help us out with a one-time donation, that is at paypal.me slash risk show. And finally, if you want to pitch us your stories, go to risk-show.com slash submissions and all you need to know is there. And if you have any questions, feel free to email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Treating one another with respect. Um. <laughs> <laughs>